Cable news, noisy, boring, out of touch. That's why Salem News Channel is different. We keep you in the know. Streaming 24-7 for free. Home to the greatest collection of conservative voices like Dennis Prager, Jay Sekulow, Mike Gallagher, and more. Salem News Channel is unfiltered and unapologetic. Watch anytime, on any screen at snc.tv and local now channel 525 seals bowls these are all judgments that are laid out for us in revelation what they mean what they really are is the subject of our time the rest of this week on abounding grace with pastor gary wagner join us chapter 6 of Revelation, we begin some of the judgments that God lays out at the end of the age. And it all starts with what we call the seal judgments. There are seven seals that are opened, and it begins here in Revelation chapter 6. Join us as we understand God's final judgment on sin and a sinful world. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace. Today, we're going to be discussing the opening of the seven seals, and this is part one. The sixth chapter of the book of Revelation is part of a vision that actually began in the fourth chapter and goes through to the 11th chapter. So how I have interpreted chapters four and five the past two Sundays will determine how I will interpret everything through to the 11th chapter. I want to first read a parallel passage to Revelation 6 and then make some comments on it. So if you would, please turn to Matthew 24, and I will read a few verses and then give a few abbreviated comments. Now, before that, if you want to know the best book that I know of on Revelation 24 or Matthew 24 and Revelation 20 in the same book, it is by a man named Marcellus Kick entitled An Eschatology of Victory, An Eschatology of Victory. And it is actually the book that God used to bring me to the position that I now hold. And if you want what I believe to be the best commentary on the book of Revelation. It is not in actual book form. It is a series of sermons on CD by Greg Bonson that you can get from Covenant Media. And most of my comments on the book of Revelation are from Greg Bonson's study. Now let's look at Matthew 24, because as I'm sure you will see, there are some parallels to Revelation 6. So Matthew 24, beginning in verse 1. Jesus came out from the temple and was going away when his disciples came up and pointed out the temple buildings to him. And he said to them, Do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone shall be left upon another which will not be torn down. Now, it is Jesus who initiates this conversation. He's walking along in Jerusalem, and he, is, he and his disciples are leaving the temple. He says to the disciples, do you see this temple and all of its grounds? There is coming a day 
when not one stone will be left upon another and the entire temple will be torn to the ground and literally in 70 AD, not one stone was left upon another. But nevertheless, Jesus is making a comment about the temple in Jerusalem and he says, there is coming a day when the temple will be utterly destroyed. Next verse, the situation is different now. They have moved along and are no longer walking through the town. They are on the side of a hill, and it says, And he, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when all these things happen, and what will the sign of your coming and of at the end of the age? In other words, the disciples had been apparently talking among themselves about Jesus' comment concerning the temple being torn down. And they not only ask, when will the temple be torn down? But they ask him another question that hadn't even been brought up. They said, we've been thinking. When you told us the temple was going to be torn down, we were wondering when all these things take place and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. You see, before the resurrection of Christ, the apostles were confused about a lot of things. They had been influenced by Jewish thought more than the word of God, and they could not imagine a time on earth when the temple would not be in Jerusalem. I mean, to them, that was the center of the world the holiest place in all the world. Therefore, when Jesus says there is going to be a time when the temple will be torn down, they were thinking, well, then it has to be the end of the world. It has to be Jesus coming at the end of the age because they could not imagine a time when the temple would not be standing, even though Jesus said nothing about his coming at the end of the age. But good teacher that Jesus was and is, he deals with the issue he brought up and with their issue. So in the first 34 verses, Jesus deals with the question, when, all these, when will all these things be? That is, when will the temple in Jerusalem be destroyed? Then beginning in verse 36, you have this strong conjunction, but showing contrast. But as over against these other things in verses 1 through 35, of that day and hour, no one knows. And he talks about his second coming at the end of the age. So he splits their questions. In the first 35 verses, he answers their question about the destruction of the temple and when it will happen. And in verses 36 and following, he talks about the end of the world. Now, notice in verse 34, here's one of the ways you know that verse 34, that the first 34 verses deal with the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So he is saying everything that I just talked about in the first 34 verses this generation of people that I am looking at in the first century 
will not die off the scene until they see these things taking place. Now, our premillennialist brothers understand the importance of that sentence. And they mistranslate it to keep it from saying this generation. In fact, you'll notice a footnote here, even in the New American Standard Version, that says that it can be translated race. So that according to them, the 31st verse, 34th verse says, Truly I say to you, this race, meaning the Jewish race, will not pass away until all of these things take place at the second coming. There's just one very big problem with saying that the Greek word for generation means race because it does not. And that's not me making up the rules here, beloved. Get yourself a Greek lexicon, and you'll see that the word for generation does not ever mean race. But they have to make it say race to get away from what it really is saying. The word generation in Greek means generation and nothing else. And Jesus says, truly I say to you... The people he is speaking to, this generation will not pass away until the things I just described take place. Verse 36, but of that day at the second coming is a different matter. So the first 34 verses are talking about things that will take place in the lives of people there in the first century. Now look at Matthew 24, verse 4. And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it, no one misleads you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead many. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. Now, rumors and wars and rumors of wars and people being misled have nothing to do with the end of time. For nations shall rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. Now, remember that when we start looking at Revelation chapter 6. But all of these things are merely, listen, merely the beginning of birth pangs or pains. They are not at the end. They are at the beginning. A birth pang is not something that takes place at death. It takes place at the beginning of life. Verse 9. Then they will deliver you, those whom he is speaking with, to tribulation. That is, you disciples. They will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. At that time, many will fall away or apostatize, which actually did happen, and will betray one another and hate one another, and that happened at Masada and at the destruction of Jerusalem. And many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. Because lawlessness is increased, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. 
This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony or witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. In other words, the end is not going to come until the gospel is preached to all of the nations in the world. Verse 15. Therefore, when you, first century disciples, see the abomination of destruction, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Who is ever on the house top must not go down to get the things out that are in the home. Who is ever in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on a Sabbath. Now, none of those things have any relevance to the second coming. What does fleeing to the mountains have to do with the second coming? Nothing. What does it matter if you come down from the rooftop to get your cloak? Is it so that you don't get cold while you're being raptured up? Pray that your flight is not in the winter. In other words, this is a local situation. So let those who are in Judea or in Jerusalem flee to the mountains, meaning there is something that is going to happen in Jerusalem, specifically in that locale, that if you flee to the mountains, you will be okay. And it is going to be so sudden. So don't go down and get your things out of your house. Don't go back and get your cloak. Pray that when it comes, you're not pregnant. It will be a horrible thing for nursing babies that day. Pray that you won't have to flee to the mountains in the winter or on the Sabbath. So when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken through Daniel, the prophet standing in the holy place. Oh, my friends head for the hills. Now, what is this abomination of desolation spoken of through Daniel, the prophet, standing in the holy place? Well, turn to Luke's version of this same story in Luke chapter 21. This is Luke's record of the same speech, and he changes things around a bit to explain some of the things that Matthew was talking about. Because understand, Matthew was speaking to a Jewish audience, while Luke was speaking to a Gentile audience. And a Gentile audience would have no idea what the abomination of desolation was in the book of Daniel. So now, instead of talking about the abomination of desolation, when you see it, get it out, get out of town. Notice how Luke says it. Luke quotes Jesus in verse 20 of chapter 21 as saying, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near or at hand. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains, and those who are in the midst of the city must leave. So what is this abominable thing that's going to bring desolation? It is the Roman armies who invaded Jerusalem and burned the temple down in 70 AD. Jesus said, when you see the Roman armies in Jerusalem, know they are about 
to desolate things. And when you see the abomination of their insignias in the temple, where only Jehovah is to be worshipped without any graven images, get out of town. Now go back to Matthew 24, verse 15. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, when you see the people that he is talking to, which was spoken of through Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let thee, or my reader, understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those on the housetop not go down to get the things that are in the house. Let him who is in the field not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are with child and to those who are nursing babies in those days. And pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then, what is the then? Then when you see the Roman armies in Jerusalem about to devastate the city in 70 A.D., For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. So do you know, want to know when the great tribulation is? And remember what John said when he wrote the book of Revelation in the first chapter. He said, I am on the Isle of Patmos and your brother In the tribulation. So the tribulation is that something the church must go through later on after the so-called rapture. No, the great tribulation took place then in the first century. When they saw the abomination of desolation, the Roman armies in the temple of Jerusalem, they were to head for the hills because there would be this great tribulation. Now, if this wasn't going to happen close to the end of history, what do the rest of these words then mean? Such as, has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. What does never, what does nor ever will mean if it is something that is going to take place at the end of the world? So here we see, that the great tribulation took place with the fall of Jerusalem in 70 AD, when the Roman armies burned the city to the ground. And it was such a tragedy that there has never been a tragedy like it since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall in all of history to come. Now, later on, you'll hear some things that will probably sound like they have reference to the second coming, like verse 29 and following. And that is because we have been taught to believe that those verses are to be applied to the second coming. But you're going to have to wait for a week or two to see why the text talks about the sun being darkened, the moon not giving light, and the stars falling, etc. Now let's begin to look at Revelation 6. This is a very closely knit vision that starts, as I said, back in Revelation 4 and goes through to Revelation 11. And the focus of all these chapters is on how Christ destroys apostate Judaism in the first century. 
Remember, the two great enemies of the church in the first century were apostate Judaism and anti-Christian Rome. And chapters 4 through 11, as we're going to see, and it will be so obvious as we go on, deal not with the second coming, but with Christ, but what Christ is going to do to destroy the apostate covenant people of God in the first century. And then chapters 12 through 9 deal with how Christ is going to destroy the Roman Empire. It will be very obvious as we go on that the book of Revelation is not, is not about the second coming. It is about the resurrected, risen, exalted, reigning Christ destroying the enemies of God's people. And understand, I keep bringing this up because this is the prevalent view of the majority of evangelicals today. Anyone, though, who treats the church like apostate Judaism did, anyone who treats the church like anti-Christian, tyrannical Rome did, will experience the same destiny as those two first century enemies of God's beloved church. And you've got to see how this is connected. And it is so obvious. What is pictured in Revelation 4? If you remember, it is a throne that is above all other thrones. And that throne is a symbol of God's absolute sovereignty. It's not a picture of what, thing, what things will be like at the end of the world. It is a picture of what things were like there in the first century and are like today. Notice how it begins. After these things. That doesn't mean after history, but after these things. In other words, after what he had just written about. His introductory remarks to the book of Revelation, his picture of the exalted Christ, his letters to the seven churches. After these things, I look now and there's something else I see. It, come, it says, come up here and I will show you what must take place after these things. After all of this that I have said about all the churches in Asia Minor. I'm going to tell you what is going to take place beginning now throughout all history. So come up here, John, and look at things now the way I look at things. So what did John see in the first century? He saw in the first century God sitting on a throne governing everything that takes place on earth. Can you imagine that vision? This is not something you have to wait for. The text doesn't even talk about the future. It's talking about now. John saw the throne and that throne is still in place today, beloved. And the book of Ezekiel really influenced John in what he said in this vision. Turn with me to Ezekiel and we'll look at a couple of places. First, Ezekiel chapter 1, verses 26 through 28. Here you can see where he gets this vision of a throne. <clears throat> now above the expanse that was over their heads, there was something resembling a throne like lapis lazuli in appearance. 
And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure with the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins and downward, I saw something like fire. And there was a radiance around him. As the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. So was the appearance of the likeness of the Lord. So when I saw it, I fell on my face and heard a voice speaking. So here you see where John got his description of Christ in the first chapter and the description of the throne of God in the fourth chapter. Well, that's all the time we have. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner, the ministry of Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. It is our goal and desire that you would abound in grace through the preaching and teaching of God's Word. And that is why we come to you on a daily basis. Now, as we close out our time together, we also realize that some of these messages that are presented here on Abounding Grace are well worth reviewing again at your convenience. Maybe you joined us a bit late. Well, we have copies on CD. They're just $5. Mention today's date as you call or write to us. Here's how to get in touch with us. The phone number is 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're welcome to also visit our website, learn a bit more about us. We're at reformedheritage.org. Again, reformedheritage.org. And then, of course, if you would love to partner with us, if you're feeling led of the Lord to become a financial partner with us as we continue this ministry here on this station, please write to us at PMB number 402. And the address is 1484 Pollard Road, Los Gatos, California, The zip code is 95032. Or, again, simply call us, 408-866-5607. That's 408-866-5607. You're also welcome to join us for worship. Sunday services here at Reformed Heritage Church are at 5055 Lone Hill Road in Los Gatos. We meet at the Lone Hill Church 2 in the afternoon. Directions can be found at reformedheritage.org or by, again, calling 408 866-5607. We thank you for joining us and trust we'll see you again next time we get together for another broadcast of Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner.